Hi, I'm Rebecca Fox, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists, you know. We don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an Coming at you from Christian Hell, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I summarize that if two wrongs don't make a right, try three. <laughs> Joining me as usual is part of the team that will tell you that a day without sunshine is like, you know, night. <laughs> or BC. Or BC. <laughs> never, I never thought of it that way, but it makes sense. <laughs> and she knows that the laziness is nothing more than the habit of resting before being tired, Nancy. Wait, I gotta wake up to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me that if, if I haven't have anything, if I don't have anything nice to say about anybody, I should come sit, ne- sit next to her. <laughs> I could use some of that. <laughs> Ladies, welcome back. Oh, good to be here. It's a sunny day. It's a sunny, beautiful day. I'm so, it's such a shame we don't only have part of the crew there, but hey, that's what happens. That's okay. We got the best. Oops. They're going to listen and feel bad. That's okay. That's what happens when you don't show up. Exactly. That's right. Well, that's right. You don't show up. We have the right we to, get to pick on you. We get to pick on you. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to be talking to Ira Pastor, and uh, he uh, works for a company, uh, a biotech company uh, called uh, BioQuark, and we're going to be talking about biomimicry. Uh-huh. So that's going to be very interesting. But first, let's do a bit of chit-chat. we got lots of things to talk about. Uh, ladies, did you hear that Newsweek apparently said that 500 doctors in Canada signed a petition protesting their own pay raise? I had heard something about that. Yes. They are asking the money to be given to the nurses and the patients. This is in the province of Quebec, of course, my home. And it's a petition in French. There's apparently uh, over 213 general practitioners, 184 specialists, 149 resident doctors, and 162 medical students as well. Now, apparently in the province, the average salary of a a doctor is about $260,000 gross. Uh And uh, the organization called Médecins Québécois pour le régime, the M. QRP authorized a February 17th a letter opposing the $500 million raise for the specialists, calling it indecent. Hmm. While in the meantime, the nurses and all that are facing cuts from the province. Yeah, that's uh, only in Canada would you see something like that, huh? Yeah. Some doctors say, no, you know. Very noble. Very noble. And, and I think Absolutely. It, it brings back that line they always say, uh, the, the, uh, Michael Morse in one of his movies. In Canada, we live in a world of we, not a world of me. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world of we, there would be enough money for everybody without oh, the doctors course. refusing. But it's a, it's a great gesture. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe things will turn around a little bit. Nancy, you'll love this one. Did you see, did you see that somebody edited Wikipedia? Oh, and they, in, yeah. The invertebrate page classification. I loved it. They inserted Republican Paul Ryan between horseshoe crabs <laughs> and jellyfish for spineless people. I'm surprised they elevated him that high. But <laughs> <laughs> that was just beautiful. Of course, it's been changed since, but that was just. 
I know whoever did that was, I mean, it, I, I'm, we'll never know because it was anonymous, but I hope we see a little bit more of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, we, we need a laugh. No, no, in, yeah. In, in politics. Especially <laughs> you know, in U.S. politics. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, here's something not to laugh at. The Trump administration, uh, four years after the U.S. actually pledged to help the world fight epidemics like Ebola. Remember the Ebola scare we had? Mm-hmm. They decided to cut the uh, Center for Disease Control funding by 80%. Because we don't need that. Yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not surprised. It seems as though anytime there's an opportunity to cut funding for something that's absolutely worthwhile and will help people, they zoom in, you know, like a targeted missile and cut it and mm. it just puts money into their pockets or into the military which they dearly love so it's it's so discouraging yeah because there's the the, the consequences of that are are, are so enormous exactly. way to the next one way exactly, to the next right? in 2014 uh, it was part of the uh Sorry, the, the money was part of a global health security program that was designed to train workers in detection. In 2014, $600 million was used to fight Ebola and other diseases like that. And the money will run out by 2019. Uh, the CDC, uh, sorry, um, the, uh, the, um, the White House said they will not reinvest and they will not reissue the funding. In the Congo last year, they had an Ebola outbreak, and the CDC and their efforts contained that. I'm going to say something controversial. Not no, for no. us, controversial. Yeah, Wait a minute. I know. It just comes as a shock. <laughs> I truly think there's a racial component to what they're doing. If you look at where the cuts are, and you look at the races of the people who live where the cuts are, mm, do you notice yeah, that yeah, there seems be. to be a little pattern Absolutely, there? yeah. It could be. Uh, 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 it's, it's certain that the uh, the current White House looks very inwards for sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, they just want they just want to eliminate everybody who's not white, at least from you, you know helping or be- becoming citizens. I don't see why they would do something like that. I mean, uh, little known fact here: there's actually uh, cases of the Black Plague happening in the U.S. Mm. So <laughs> you would think this, you don't want to undercut the, the, the Black Plague. <laughs> I mean, this is this is something out of medieval times. It's still happening in the U.S. It doesn't happen here in Canada. Yeah. But, you know, it's you don't want to cut <laughs> in a program like that, right? Yeah, but they probably will. <laughs> Nancy, you remember this guy, Roy Moore? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Boy, you're just hitting all my... You got all the Nancy buttons lit up today. (laughs) Well, the former Senate candidate and religious nutcase, he's being sued by one of his victims. Her name is Lee Corfman. And um, <laughs> he, apparently she was touched when, he, uh, when she was 14 and he was in his 30s. Mm. So now he's broke and he's begging for money. <laughs> yeah, because we're going to give him money. Well, you know, yeah. apparently he's, he's got a GoFundMe thing and he's trying to raise $250,000 for his defense. And so far he's raised about $32,000 and now he's desperately pleading for money. So I thought that right here at Left of the Valley, I, we sent him a uh, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> 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 that's 
send, let's send. We'll let's be generous. We'll send a double uh, dose. Double a, dose a, double, of prayers. Double dose yeah, of, totally. I guess he doesn't want to cut into his own, you know, hidden away millions. He wants everybody else's money to pay for it. The man is just, you know, <laughs> he's, he's he, a piece of something. He's like, yeah. I, I was thinking the same thing. Thank you for saying it. Yeah. Well, you know what? If he really dries up, he could try, you know, maybe turning to porn and being a porn star, a gay porn star, or something like that. It oh. might actually get some. <laughs> Man, it's a good thing I didn't have a big breakfast this morning. <laughs> um, did you guys hear that Lil' Kim, uh, we talk about the North uh, Korea dictator Kim Jong-un, has requested to actually meet President Orange? That, that's, that's it? The, yes. The, the two worst haircuts on the planet get together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming at all, sorry. <laughs> So this is according to the South Korean National Security. Uh, So now before people say, oh, hey, you know, Trump is doing the right, uh, doing doing great things. Now they want to meet. Uh, Canada and U.S. had summits in Vancouver to discuss peaceful North Korean plans. And North Korea actually agreed to restrain nuclear testing. At first, Trump opposed uh, well, opposed, I should say he expressed hope and skepticism. But now apparently he's going to meet with them. So now apparently this is going to happen very soon, actually, April or May. So this can be interesting. And you know what? As much as I'm not a fan of Trump and maybe not as bad, I don't, maybe, maybe I don't hate him as much as you do, Nancy. But if he managed to pull, he manages to pull this through, this might actually be worth his entire stupid presidency. When you look, when you look at the way he flies by the seat of his pants and lack of impulse control, plus not wanting to learn anything about diplomacy or mm-hmm. how government works. How do you think this is going to go? Well, I totally agree. But you know what? All the, the the previous presidents trying the diplomatic way, it didn't work. That's true. This stupid approach might actually work. I mean, maybe I'm being naively optimistic here. But if it does, if it does, and North Korea comes down and actually kind of becomes like a regular, regular normal country, this will be worth all the stupidness he's done to the... To the uh, they could become, it might be a swan song as a president. They could become best buds. It's hard to tell, but I know uh, Kim Jong-un has been, wa- well, he and his father and his grandfather have been wanting photo ops with the president forever. So this is something that um, that I think that's part of their strategy. We, we have yet to find out. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes, you know. It's, it's, it's like a TV reality show. Boy, oh boy. You know, yeah, we get exactly. We've got to, we know, to the, keep an the, eye on that. You know, the, the big bad guys get to meet. So we'll see. <laughs> and we got some good feminist news to finish all this. Um, did you guys hear that Brenda Lucky is going to be the new RCMP commissioner? heard that she's been appointed she's going to take office april the 16th uh this happened after of course all the uh, complaints they had against the rcmp of sexual harassment there was a 100 million dollar settlement that was paid by the rcmp uh she she apparently has a a lot of history of helping first nations as well i heard that. so the first female commissioner of the rcmp and good for her yeah, no, that's, that's great that's, news. Yeah, that's that's good. I hope she gets a lot of backing and a lot of support. Yes, and that's that's what we hope. Yeah, I yeah. think it's a, I, and it's nice that this is happening for women's um, women's history month. Yes, a lot of good things yes. are happening because mm-hmm. it's women's history month. And another good story about this. Did you guys hear? There's a new ten dollar bill. Absolutely, and it's featuring Viola Desmond. 
it's been released by the Bank of Canada and and, and her sister where her sister Wanda were actually there for the for the revealing. Um and her sister won actually got the first new ten dollar bill. Now this circula- yeah. the circulation of this bill won't happen till the end of the year. Um Viola Desmond, for people that don't know, she's pretty, pretty much like the Canadian Rosa Park. Uh, she in uh, November eighth, nineteen forty six, she was driving her car. Her car broke down, and while her car was being fixed, she decided to go watch a movie in uh, Nova Scotia, and she went into the white only section. And they, she was basically kicked out, although she wanted to pay the extra because apparently it was an extra fee of luxury or something like that. And she offered to pay, and they said no. And then she was charged by she was charged by the prosecution something ridiculous like not paying a penny for the extra tax because uh, that's how wow. much it cost at the time. Yeah. And she kind of stood her ground, and today she's being recognized. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. It is cool. It is. It, it is cool. very very cool. All right. Well, we're cool up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, we often see the kind of stuff that happens in the states, and we easily forget that we also had a uh, a history of segregation and racism as well. Maybe we not do. as poignant or as difficult as the United States, but we we certainly did. And it's good to see that this is coming easily to an end as well. Oh, and last but not least, in case you haven't caught it, I was actually invited on the uh, Beyond the Trailer Park show. I saw that. Yeah, their last show there on Monday features myself and, uh, and uh, more of their guests there, so we had fun doing that. They're, they're an interesting bunch. It was. It was split screen, so yeah. you, you got a lot of FaceTime oh, in with uh, I'm the not girls. sure that's a good thing. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it was nice. It was, I, I enjoyed watching because it was split screen, and we could see, you know, whoever was handling the the, uh, the board was doing a really nice job. No, I think it's, it's done automatically by the computer. As soon as oh. your voice comes in, the computer switches oh, to uh-huh. whatever camera. So I don't know. I, Such high tech things. Yeah, it's high tech things. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. It was. It was. Maybe it one was day nice. we'll do that with our show. Yeah. You know, then we need four cameras here. No, well, we could tell you guys were having a really fun time, and you know, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a meandering, nice, uh, friendly conversation. So, yeah, exactly. congrats to everybody for a successful show. We enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. All right, so Nancy, you got a top ten for us? I do. I certainly do. I thought we'd do something. Well, this is a little bit like something we've done before, but this is the top ten most livable cities. Ooh. And some good news, sort of in the middle, as a matter of fact. Okay, ten. The ten most livable cities is put out by a group called the Global Livability Report. They do it every year, and they decide the rank. Um, based on the stability of the city, uh, the amount of health care, the quality of the health care, culture and environment, uh, education, and infrastructure. That's how they rate whether a city is uh, livable or not livable. So the number 10 most livable city is Hamburg, Germany. Germany has a pretty good reputation at this point, you know, for for being livable and and changing, you know, um, the environment in a number of different ways. Um, Number nine is Finland and, and the city Helsinki. We all figure that's that's got to be. Had to be some Scandinavian right? countries in there. Okay, in New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand mm. is number eight. Perth, Australia, 
Um, n- number seven. Hold on, I, I got I got something to say here. Okay. About uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Okay. Everybody talks about New Zealand, how beautiful the scenery is, and all that. And it's great. Don't get me wrong; it's absolutely great. But you know what? It's one thing that we don't do enough as Canadians. We have that same scenery right here, if not better. If not better. I mean, have you seen the Canadian Rockies for for fun? You know, they make the New Zealand mountains look nothing. Go and uh, experience it, guys. Yes, yes. And it's one thing that we don't do as Canadians. We don't. Well, maybe this is not the right word. We don't brag enough about our stuff. We're not we're not good at advertising or marketing ourselves. We're really not. Because we're Canadian. Yeah, exactly. Well, then, just hang in there and listen to the rest of no, the Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, a couple of surprises coming up. Okay, um, Adelaide, Australia. Mm-hmm. Another beautiful city. Here we go. Calgary, oh, Canada. Really? Is, Calgary? Yeah, yeah. Um, number four. Toronto. Ah, really? Toronto? Toronto. Oh, God. Yeah. Livable, I guess, overall. Oh, livable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. livable. Okay, number three, Vancouver. I was wondering yeah, what yeah. that was going to come out. We've got three... Three Canadian yeah, cities right three there. Canadian cities right there. Number two, Vienna, Austria. I oh. guess most a lot of people love to go. I mean, they've had a lot of culture, um, you know, and and uh, art and you know things like that, yeah, which has made it people flock. There's to, a long, there's long yeah. history of Vienna. Yeah. Vienna. Number one. Anybody want to guess what number one city is? Uh, Detroit. On on somebody's list, I guess, from some war-torn country, Melbourne, Australia. Oh. Yeah, so Australia had three livable cities and Canada three livable Uh, cities. They have a way to say it. Then they say Melbourne or something like that. Yeah, they, they don't say Melbourne or something like that. They say yeah. Melbourne or something. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, just just for just for fun, would anybody like to guess the least livable city <laughs> in the world? Oh boy. Oh, this is gonna be <laughs> some something yeah, it that's may, like it war may right come now. It may come as a little surprise. Really? I don't know. The least the least because you, you know you're gonna you're gonna think about um, uh, uh, something at know, war like yeah, Syria. Or something you're gonna like that. you're gonna think about Syria. But actually, the least livable city in the world is Kiev in the Ukraine. Really? Yeah. Did they say why? It, it, in the rating, it just is the lowest in really? both in the stability. I guess is was one. It it ranks um, uh, 131st in in all of the different countries. Yeah. Wow! Wow! Yeah. I did not expect that at all. Yeah. Yeah, Good. I didn't either. I was very surprised to see that. Okay. So, there we go. Anyway, it's lovely to live in a country that has three. We need to market more, perhaps. Yes, and I not think we be do. as humble and not be as sorry. Well, I mean, but have you, have we you have a lot to be proud about. Like right here on TV, right here on TV in BC, you'll see ads like for Oregon. You know, like come and visit Oregon. It's beautiful down here. I said, do you really think Oregon has anything to to offer that we don't already have up here? I, I'm sorry, I don't think so. No, I know when I first uh, came up here in 1987, I I, re- I truly fell in love with with Vancouver, and yeah. I thought, you know, one of these days I'm going to marry this guy that I'm with. <laughs> And and we're coming back. Yeah. And I was I was really very happy to to come up. There's yeah. also a few things that we have to, to put in there. Um, Americans, for example, being our neighbors to the south and the only country beside us, 
uh, are not travelers. They don't travel as much as Canadians do. So they have a tendency to do a lot of vacations within the U.S., yeah. not necessarily outside of the U.S. So that might be one of the reasons why we don't advertise so much or something like that. But I'd, I'd be curious to see some stats on which... But maybe, I'm sure the Americans are still the, the highest number of visitors in the country here. But after that, where are they, com- where are they coming from? Are they coming from mm-hmm. China? Are they coming from Europe? You know, I'd be really, really curious to see that. So. I, I see, I, it used to be I, I would see a lot of German and Japanese tourists up there here. There is a lot of German the mainly, Yeah, the, the two groups to me that were most noticeable mm-hmm. years ago were the, the Japanese and uh, and it got but Chinese probably considering the, the amount of real estate that they like to, to buy up here. Well, but wh- that whether they come a, as, a, as yeah, a tourist. As, or as a tourist, but I know the Japanese and the, yeah, and the Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's really sure. interesting. Anyway. At the end of it, we have beautiful scenery. Oh, oh, we do. My grandfather used to be a bus driver and used to drive a, a, a minor league hockey team across the entire country. Oh, and he used to tell me, he says there is no more beautiful country than this place. You will find absolutely everything you like. You want deserts, you can find deserts. You want like mountains, you can find mountains. You want oh, yeah, forests, absolutely. You will find anything you want that the earth can offer right here in this country because it's so vast and there's so much of of, of it that still remains. You know, untouched, which is a good thing. I think there is a conscious desire to to protect and preserve. You know well, what what we have, and not stick an oil well in the middle of it. <laughs> also, the yeah. the temperature can drop drastically <laughs> when you go up there. Maybe not anymore because of climate change, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, thank you, Nancy. That was a great top ten as usual. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Yeah. And to come on such a nice day, too. I yeah. know. It's a beautiful day out there. It's going to be a great weekend. They're talking about 19 degrees Monday. Wow. Wow. Here in Abbotsford. So it's like summer weather. Yeah. Well, for, for our U.S. For listeners, us. that's that's close to 70. Is it? Okay. I, yeah. I, I'm so glad you hear you can translate that way better than mine. <laughs> I'm always trying. Okay, so it's like plus 36 times 2 or something like that, right? The conversion is something like that. Yeah, Whenever you double... You double? You, you double, and then you add 32 because... Oh, okay. I was close. Yeah, because a zero... You double know, and add 32. Yeah. Okay, there we go. I just always... My grandma will give it to me in Fahrenheit. Like, Grandma, Canadian degrees, please. Yeah, <laughs> metric. We're in metric here. We've been in metric for a long time. Although there's still some things that we don't do in metric. For example, I never tell my weight in kilograms. It's always in yeah. pounds, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, in the industry I work, it's a lot of inches too it's not I have trouble when they say uh-huh. there's so many centimeters of rain I don't know what that is I yeah. want to know in inches how much rain exactly right as you know you when you uh, want to tell my height you know say I'm, I'm 5'10 I'm not 1.8 meters <laughs> or something like that you know yeah yeah so there's still some things that we still use the imperial system but the rest of it is it's all metric metric's better my, yeah. to our US listeners metric is better anyway moving on <laughs> it's time for our other segment we always love calling another brilliant moment Brought to you by religion. Oh, I have an assist. I love that. <laughs> now, I'm sorry. One of our listeners says he doesn't like this music, but I'm sorry, bud. Maybe maybe we'll change it one, one episode for you, but not today. All right. So, uh, let's see. Let's. Uh, did you guys hear that? Uh, this is a bit of an older story. Women in Texas may have to literally fight for their freedom and their lives to make sure some Republican law- lawmakers don't get their way. What? Yeah. Again. Donald you know, Trump. You have to add again. Again, exactly. During his presidential campaign in 2016, Donald Trump actually mentioned jail and said that women should receive some form of punishment for having an abortion. Mm-hmm. Well, now, some GOP rep 
Tony Tinderholt has apparently introduced a bill called Bill 948, which would punish any woman for having an abortion with prison time. It won't get through. It won't. It, well, I hope not. It won't. That's this, so is Texas. Stupid. this is Texas. This is Texas. It's Texas, but I don't know exactly how the primaries turned out in every district, but I know the Democrats are on the heels I of hope a so. lot of the Republicans, and there's a chance that they may put any legislator that puts frivolous lawsuits up in jail. So watch it, Tony. Is well, it Tony? Yeah, Tony. Yeah, okay. uh, apparently this legislation contains zero exception for rape victims, victims of incest, and women who have an abortion to save their lives. So we're not, we're not sure where it is right now because, like I said, this is an older story, so I'm not going to keep on going with No, I wonder whether or not he felt emboldened to do this after the legislature passed the fact that women have to have additional rape insurance in order to be covered yeah. if they're raped. Rape so insurance. that may be, you know... That's that, brilliant. That, why? I know. <laughs> yeah, it, because it's Texas. Well, you know, that because that could easily become an insurance scam, right? Hey, I just have a rape insurance for a million dollars and then the next day, hey, I was just raped. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a Texas men are men and women are second class citizens you know how it goes that's just sad it is well moving on from um, stupid to stupid state um, (laughs) the stupid it burns Florida State Representative Kimberly Daniels thanks gods for slavery (sighs) claiming quote if it wasn't for slavery I might be somewhere in Africa worshipping a tree Oh, I actually heard about this one. Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> she, she's the uh, Daniels. Uh, she's the sponsor of the bill that recently passed in, in the Florida House that would force every public school to put in God We Trust. Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. And she's obviously a nutcase. During her closing speech of In God We Trust Bill, she cited the recent shooting at uh, the Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland that happened a couple of weeks ago. And Daniel said that God is the light and our schools need light uh, in them like never before. So we kept making the joke about calling an electrician. <laughs> she addresses that the uh, she ad- she added that the gun issue needs to be addressed, but the real thing that needs to be addressed is the issues of the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Thoughts and prayers to you, honey. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, she's been completely open about the, her. her uh, theocratic goals and she preaches to exercise demons and speaks in tongues so she's a nutcase uh-huh. so uh, in a jaw dropping clip from the FFRF video the, Daniel declares quote I thank God for slavery if it wasn't for slavery I might be somewhere in Africa worshipping a tree wow. I wonder if she's related to Michelle Bachman <laughs> <laughs> at least there are two two of them that are you know nutcases nut that can console each other <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> oh okay and here's another story. It's like a rain dance, only with Jesus and magic underwear. Utah Governor Gary Herbert issued bizarre Facebook posting asking citizens to pray for snow. Uh, you can pray for rain, but now you gotta pray for snow. Pray for snow? Yeah. In an embarrassing and ridiculous bit of religious pandering, Utah Governor Gary Herbert sent a letter of, to faith leaders across the state asking them to pray and their congregation to pray for snow. Herbert also posted a copy of the letter. <laughs> Is that for skiing purposes? Or? I don't know. Like <laughs> the rain I get, and I guess if you want like a good snow cap or whatever. Maybe, or it's, maybe it's just getting too hot in Utah. Here's the letter. It says, Dear Religious Leader, I am writing today to invite you and your faith community to unite in thanksgiving and prayer during the first week of March 2018. 
During the bitterly hot, there we go, dry and windy summer of 2012, Utah has become a tinderbox. We witnessed heroism from our firefighters across the state, but after all we could physically do, most of the states still remain under the red flag warning. I feel like rain might be a little more helpful in that case. <laughs> well, in the winter, right? So maybe that's where you're asking for snow. At that time, I reached out to our interfaith community with a request for extra measures of providential help in our battle against the fires. And you responded with prayers in your synagogues, your mosques, your cathedral, cathedral, your chapels, and your homes, asking that life and property be protected and that the elements be tempered. Uh. <laughs> this, is, this is a politician. I can't believe this. Within days of your collective prayers, the rains came. <laughs> and not just any rain, but gentle, soaking rains without the winds that would have exasperated the fires. The elements had, in fact, been tempered. Today, our state faces another similar challenge. Although we have just received some fresh snow, this year's uncharacteristically warm and dry weather pattern have left the state with about half the snowpack that it might experience in a regular year. It's called climate change, dumbass. Well, who needs climate change when you have prayer? <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> because the health of our waterways, our wetlands, our agriculture, and our forests in particular depends on the abundant snowpack, and because none of us can afford to witness the destruction that comes with wildfire, I am again reaching out to you and your faith communities with an invitation to unite in prayer. As you gather in your places of worship and in your homes during the first week of March, would you please join me in a special prayer? First and foremost, I believe we should thank the art creator for the extraordinary blessing that we enjoy as a state, but I will also encourage us to pray that the elements be tempered on our behalf. Thank you for considering this special request, and thank you all uh, for all that you do to meet the significant spiritual needs of the people of the great state. I'd like to know how many times in from March on they've actually gotten snow in Utah. I want to know how, you know, what's the, what's, what are the odds that the, that the prayers get? The, and your point? <laughs> this is a Republican governor. Your point, please. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But I mean, this, <laughs> my God, this is 2018, and, and what, what is he going to do next? Is he going to gather everybody? to going to do some kind of dance to make sure the snow and the rain comes? Makes sense to me. Oh, my goodness. I mean, why send somebody to to the university to get a degree in science and have to pay them when you can dance around a fire and ask for prayer. It's free. And, <laughs> and if it works, <laughs> I mean, if they can establish a track record, heck, I'll go out there with them. <laughs> it's like, this is this is the same guy, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I will bet this is the same guy that says climate change is, a fa is not true. This is Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it has to there's be. no such thing as climate change, no. but now we're going to pray for more snow. <laughs> like, somehow that's going to... Oh, I don't know. What I know. Mean. Crazy, crazy one. All right. Okay. I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> on that note... <laughs> on that note, thank you, ladies, for your input. So, let's go to commercial real quick here, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Ira Pastor about biomimicry, so stay with us. <sighs> 
Do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm. Or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. A Canadian, a New Yorker, and a Southern Belle walked into a podcast. And all hell broke loose. Seriously, though, what happens when we three ladies get together? Well, definitely a lot of talking. And accents. Funny accents. Well, I don't have an accent, but my co-hosts sure do. We mix North, South, and the Great White North together for two hours of pure secular discussion. Nothing is off-limits. From goofy religions like Scientology, woo like ghost hunting and alternative medicine, to hardcore history, hermeneutics, sex, and science, we cover it all. What the heck is a hermeneutic? Well, it's not a guy named Herman who sings falsetto, that's for sure. Join Beth, Ashley, and myself, Deborah, every Monday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, and we take you beyond the trailer park and bring the conversation to life. Join us live on YouTube and participate in the conversation via the Q&A system, or catch us later on Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Nobex. Visit www.beyondthetrailerpark.com for links to the show and our upcoming schedule. Bring your wine and sweet tea and settle in for fun facts and free thinking. We happily wear the explicit tag, though, so make sure to wash out your mouth with something tasty before listening. That's live at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Come give us a like and a share, no matter what type of accent you have. Nine million children die every year before they reach the age of five. Any God who would allow children by the millions to suffer and die in this way either can do nothing to help them or doesn't care to. He is therefore either impotent or evil. But this to me is the, is the true horror of religion. It allows perfectly decent and sane people to believe by the billions what only lunatics could believe on their own. If you wake up tomorrow morning thinking that saying a few Latin words over your pancakes is going to turn them into the body of Elvis Presley, you have lost your mind. But if you think more or less the same thing about a cracker and the body of Jesus, you're just a Catholic. So joining us live here is Ira Pastor. He is the CEO of a company called BioQuark, which is a company that actually is working on reviving dead brains and repairing organ tissue. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Ira, thank you so much for joining us here at Left of the Valley. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's a pleasure. <laughs> um, oh, I guess I guess we should really start. This is a, an interesting way to describe a company. I guess we should really start by asking, what exactly does BioQuark uh, do? Sure. Um, so, you know, we are a, a biotech company and our whole uh, mission is, in essence, uh, going back 
uh, to nature uh, and looking at all of the uh, what I refer to as sort of superhero organisms that live on this planet with us, uh, which from a, a health perspective are just so much further advanced than we are. Uh, and when we're, whether we're talking about things like uh, salamanders who can uh, regenerate entire organs and limbs when they lose them, mm -hmm. uh, including things like spinal cords, heart, eyeballs, parts of their brains, or whether we're talking about uh, other species like uh, planarian worms that, you know, get cancer and uh, and shrug it off as if it was the common cold um, or whether you know we go to the far end of the spectrum and we talk about some organisms that do not age uh, those that age in reverse uh, or those that some, you know even die and come back to life um, we're basically you know wanted to take a second look and say you know <laughs> we as humans are pretty weak when it comes to doing a lot of this stuff uh, Tell me about so that. we want to sort of figure out how we can reconnect with this these abilities that obviously, you know, nature has put here uh, in front of us, which we do not possess yet, um, maybe taking a new look with the uh, technologies of the 21st century and figuring out how to reawaken them in humans. So essentially, you guys are doing what they call biomimicry, and you're trying to apply these um, abilities to our everyday life, whether in technology or in a bio uh, sense for us in biology, right? Exactly. Biomimicry is a great, you know, I haven't, I haven't used that word in a while, but it is an awesome term. And yes, exactly. Uh, mimicking everything we see from the plants to the salamanders to the uh, fish and figuring out how, where we went wrong and how we can start uh, once again to, to have some of these abilities. Now, you guys have officially become my favorite company of all time just by, just by doing that kind of science, so I congratulate you. Um, is, is, this, is, is this a growing field? I mean, it's, it's something that most people have never, never really heard of, except maybe in deep science, uh, circles of science. Yeah, I mean... It's very interesting because, you know, I come out of the the more traditional pharmaceutical industry for the last 30 years. And there, although, you know, meant much of the 20th century was based on, so you know, natural products that came primarily from the plant uh, and fungal uh, communities, um, the last couple of decades, the pharmaceutical industry sort of threw away a lot of nature. Um, although it's something that, you know, we've been studying for hundreds of years, they just decided, you know, their chemists and their fancy uh, labs could do things better than nature could. Mm -hmm. um, I never accepted that, <laughs> especially the, you know, due to the fact that most of the organisms here have been here a lot longer than us. Yes. Um, you know, the tree outside my window here, it's great, great, great grandfathers and so forth, were, you know, was here a billion years ago. Survived ice ages and extinctions and solar flares and all sorts of crazy stuff that most likely would kill us pretty quickly. Um, so I, I, I place my bets and, and uh, sort of on the side of nature and that we've sort of missed a lot uh, when we sort of discarded the natural world and trying to do everything inside a lab. But in general, regenerative medicine as a an area is definitely uh, growing and coming online. Uh, it's much more heavily uh, based on sort of the stem cell area now, uh, but we've chosen sort of not to go that route uh, and focus instead on sort of more traditional biologics uh, in our development program. Mm -hmm. So so I got to ask probably one of the th things that uh, bugs a lot of people, especially in, in these circles of skeptics and all that, is are you guys affiliated in any way, shape, or form? I'm assuming you're not, but you're not affiliated necessarily with health supplements, 
products or so-called natural remedies and stuff like that, right? This is not what you guys are doing. No, I mean, we we start with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you know, every, you know, every product out there, whether it's a drug or a dietary supplement uh, or a food in many ways, you know, starts with nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it basically how you design what you want to do, um, you can get you know, stay close to nature or get a little further away from nature. Um, we work with many animals. Uh, so we work with frogs, we work with salamanders, we work with fish. Um, but um, we're doing very little in terms of the sort of dietary supplement market right now and, you know, much more focusing on uh, how we can isolate, uh, you know, really drug-like substances to develop Really cutting edge therapies. Yeah, so you guys are not out there to try to sell me shark cartilage as no, no, a no. way for me to keep an erection or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> Damn, I was about not to ask you if you had any. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> okay, so so this this is obviously a growing field um, and and a growing business, and it's it's a thing that has my God, I could say unlimited potential, right? Yeah, I mean, we look at it with the exception of infectious diseases, which is, you know, the the area of the antibiotics and so forth. Everything on this planet that kills us as humans, from Alzheimer's to cancer to heart disease to diabetes and so forth, is either a disease of degeneration, mm-hmm. where we are losing cells of some sort that are not coming back, or a disease of cellular damage where the cells remain but are changed in a bad way. So cancer, mm-hmm. autoimmune diseases, fibrotic diseases. So of the seven trillion dollars that, you know, we are spending around the world nowadays on health, you know, about three trillion which comes from here in the United States and, and the rest abroad, uh, which is a crazy number when you think about mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's in perpetuity too. It's not like you know. It's not like oil, no, which yeah. ultimately at some point in the future runs out. But you know, disease is is infinity. <laughs> um, you know, we, yeah, we have a pretty big market in front of us, and if we can um, impact disease as opposed to just treat, like the pharmaceutical industry likes to do, give you a little pill that you get from Rite Aid and take for the next twenty years. Mm-hmm. If we can, you know, regenerate your brain or regenerate your spinal cord or regenerate your heart and start over again. Um, we solved a lot of problems that cost a lot of money. And mm-hmm. so we think not only will we have an impact on sort of the healthcare bill, uh, let's say, but uh, for the first time, really be able to, to, to at least try to shrink it um, so that we're not, you know, focusing so much on so-called sick care uh, as the model's been for the last hundred years, but more of actual curative care. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you you mentioned that you were out of uh, Philadelphia, and and uh, I, I have to ask the question because now we're talking about healthcare systems. And of course, being Canadian, we have a very different system than you guys do. Um, sure. Do you, In your uh, capacity as an American company, do you find you're getting a better response from government entities or from private corporations when it comes to biomimicry and using the technology? you guys are producing um it's a, it's a great question it, it really depends on um uh, the country and sort of the uh different regulatory dynamics we see uh, obviously the u.s is a very 
in terms of its regulatory system for therapeutics, extremely conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, although we spend a tremendous amount of the total drug spend of the of the entire world here, um, it still takes a long time, fifteen to twenty years, to to get a new therapeutic through. Um, so we are seeing moves in other countries that are really interesting to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Japan. Um, recently instituted what was called conditional approval of some regenerative medicine products. So instead of going through three phases of clinical trial, um, if people are dying, um, they're allowing people that they're allowing them to try uh, in phase two, where there is already evidence of safety and efficacy, mm-hmm. just not the extremely long-term studies that they want to see for phase three. Um, this makes a lot of sense in an era where you know we realize that. 20-year time frames uh, for drugs, a lot of people die in that process. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very interesting sort of the different niches that we're seeing around the world open up uh, and that it is, you know, the old model that, you know, we would only do everything in the United States and then worry about the rest of the world later is really getting turned on its head because there's dozens of countries now, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, Colombia or Turkey or Thailand, which are really coming on strong with regard to the way they look at and approve and regulate new therapeutic substances. Um, and, and it's a, you know, even though we're a small U.S. company, we kind of say we have to be global um, in terms of, you know, what we're doing. Because if it takes 20 years to get the market here, but only 12 in the Middle East or Southeast Asia, we got to be in the Middle East and Southeast Asia before. So yes. um, we're, we're, fle- we're being very flexible with our sort of regulatory outlook. And that, that brings me to probably a point that I think a lot of people have a tendency to fear when it comes to these new uh, medicine, new technologies, is they fear um, the, the uh, profit incentive. Um, they a lot of people have a tendency to say, say stuff like, "Oh, big pharma is out to get you." Oh, they had a cure for cancer forever. They just don't want to give it to you because it's more profitable to have a person, you know, with a lifetime treatment than a one-time uh, shot, and he or she is cured. So, how how do you reassure the public? Because you guys are at the base of creating new technology. You're not just creating new new medicine. You're creating new technologies. How do you reassure the public that you're not doing this to make a quick buck? Well, you know, it's 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 a, a wonderful question. You know, fortunately, I have the uh, experience of having spent time on both sides mm-hmm. of the sort of table, per se, being in big pharma and being on the other side of things. Um, the you know, people always ask me the question about sort of the pharma conspiracy and where where is everything being hidden and why aren't there cures, even <laughs> yes. though you generate a trillion dollars a year? And I point out that. It's not the stuff being hidden. It just doesn't exist because the pharma industry was never set up to cure. Mm-hmm. Um, a cure and a treatment, although those two terms may sound similar, are very different. Um, I point out that you know the difference between a treatment and a cure is you know it's not like asking General Motors or Mercedes or Toyota to build electric cars instead of internal combustion engines. It's almost like asking them to stop making cars entirely and build, you know, some type of flying vehicle. Mm-hmm. It's just not what they do. And so I reassure that this isn't another situation of something positive that will get uh, shut down rapidly because we're in a very different era where, frankly, big pharma 
can't allow for it anymore because they're in bad shape. Uh, if this was 30 years ago, it would have been a different story. But now what you have, you have these giant 50, 60, 70 billion dollar companies that need new products because they're losing them. Uh, so while they're losing their product revenues, they're also uh, promising Wall Street or Wall Street wants to see certain growth. It's not going to come from within. Mm -hmm. So here we are in 2018. It's a much different time. And although they are this, you know, large companies, they're really shells. They're basically marketing entities that don't do much inside. So they really need us. Mm -hmm. And so we have a much stronger position where we're not really in, in the position to say, hey, you know, they'll take it and throw it away because they can't do that. Um, and that will just hasten their, their death. So we're pretty confident that um, the times are different. Um, that based on what we see, not only what we're doing, but in, in some of the moves that other groups are making in this position in terms of curative interventions as opposed to just treatments, that um, times have changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly, um, 2018 is much different than, you know, the 1980s. Oh, yeah, and for sure, for sure. Used to be. So, so, so when BioCourt goes out there, are you guys... What what really drives you? Is it really the research of new discovery, or is it more uh, uh, the the profit motive yet again? For example, I was uh, I give the example that a few years ago we had the Ebola scare, uh, and the United States was scrambling to find something to do something, and the, the pharmaceutical companies could not respond until they actually found a vaccine here in Canada in a government lab. Now, something like Ebola would not be profitable for a company, but a company like BioQuark, which has such a huge field of, like I said, unlimited potential, uh, I'm assuming here that what drives you guys is the potential for the, the discovery, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's the, look, at my core, and just mm -hmm. as a side note, you know, I'm, I'm a... I'm 49 years old, but I'm a child, technically inside. I grew up loving science fiction, loving comic books. And I always, you know, dreamed about how, you know, we could improve, enhance the, the human ability, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. yes. Whether, you know, it's, you know, healing or resistance to cancer or a long life or, or whatever it has to do. I have this childish sort of zeal inside me uh, to do big things of this nature. Uh, on top of that, I watched, you know, my father die of spinal cancer, my mother die of congestive lung disease, uh, my grandparents die of cancer and heart disease, and I sit here in a trillion dollar industry, or I sat in a trillion dollar industry, and, and I was kind of a little pissed off that despite the fact that we made a trillion dollars a year mm -hmm. in the pharmaceutical industry, we couldn't cure a damn thing. And so my parents are gone, my grandparents are gone, but now I have three children of my own. Yes. Um, and a lovely wife, too. Um, <laughs> they, they are the future. And so... If I couldn't do it for my parents and my grandparents, I'm damn well going to do it for them. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there is a profit here, but uh, but profit is 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's down the road. There, biotech is not like making a new app. Uh, no, no, of course if, not. If, anyone, if, you, if you want to get rich in biotech, you're not probably because the, rate, <laughs> the, ra the rates of failure are so high. So, of course, I see that, you know, hey, if we cure cancer in 15 years, there'll be money to be made. Um, but today, the real motive is succeeding <laughs> and being passionate. I'm very passionate about um, solving the problems that 
the last hundred years of trillions of dollars of revenue we're not able to solve. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by the comment you said that the, the rate of failure is so high because you would think if, if you are mimicking what's already done in nature, you already have a bit of a blueprint. So where does the failure kind of occur? Does it occur in defining an application as to our human lives or is it the, oh, no. the, in reproducing what nature's been doing? Right, right. No, okay. I, 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 let me clarify that one. Uh, no, in, in cases where we stay close to nature, mm-hmm. um, fail, failure is not high. It's all, failure is high where, for instance, the pharmaceutical company, uh, as an example, in the past has found something in the rainforest mm-hmm. and then taken it back to the lab and then tweaked this and added a fluorine group here and a bromine group here and modified it a million ways to make something highly patentable. Yes. Which is then super toxic yes. <laughs> or, or you know, starts killing livers five years from now and they don't know about it. When you stay somewhat close to nature, uh, remember, nature puts these things here. The evolutionary process creates substances yes. that are meant to be here. And genomically, because, you know, we are you – know, people. not everyone likes to hear this, but, you know, we are 99.2% chimpanzee and, you know, we're 92% pufferfish and all this. Mm-hmm. There is a connection uh, of similarities between many species, uh, just like the salamanders mm-hmm. um, and humans. Mm-hmm. It's there. We're not saying we want to genetically engineer anybody, but what we want to say is we're very similar. And so if we listen to nature, we see what works across species, we can have some common sense and we can have some you know, increasing of the odds. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you do things the, the pharma way of taking things and dramatically modifying them just for patentability and getting five extra years of such and such, that's where problems happen. Hmm. Um, and that's been the the major issue in terms of the failure rate. Okay, so let, let's dig a bit deeper here. So if we're if we if we're going to keep this in layman's term, if you look at the natural world, you have your fauna and you have your flora. Now, when it comes to potential discoveries and pot- uh, uh, discoveries to be made in nature that we can actually imitate and maybe apply to human the human life, uh, where do we find more potential? Do we find more in the animal kingdom or in the plant kingdom? Uh, both. Uh, I mean, the, the answer to that is both, and I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, the first hundred years uh, of the pharma industry was based on what we'll call the reductionist model of um, trying to blast apart a plant uh, um, and find something finding the best thing. I make the analogy like my cup of coffee sitting here right now has about 600 different natural phytochemicals in it. Uh, caffeine is one of them. So the difference between, you know, caffeine may be the most potent stimulant in this cup of coffee, but there's hundreds of other things there that have benefit. We mm-hmm. just have not studied them all. Mm-hmm. So from one perspective, we missed a large dimension of what's in the natural world in terms of the plant kingdom. Uh, there's estimated we've only touched like a couple percent of, of all plant species out there anyway. But on top of that are the animals. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, we've been spending time, fish amphibians, worms, starfish, so forth. And the reason we work here is is in the terminology sort of the life sciences. Uh, it's a it's sort of a running joke in sort of the area of biology that, you know, the first thing you ever do in a lab to study life is kill stuff, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But it's called the life sciences. Mm-hmm. So what we're focused on, we're not focused on killing things and grinding them up. 
we're focused on keeping things alive and studying the real time biology of what goes on when that, you know, when that poor salamander loses its tail due to a predator, what's going on in real time in that spinal cord? What cells are being produced? What proteins are being secreted to help grow and extend the tail? Um, so life science is getting back to the sort of holistic approach. And lastly, um, some, a term we use, combinatorial methods. Um, a lot of, once again, what the pharmaceutical industry has loved to produce are so-called single magic bullets. Uh, they want one thing uh, that they can put in the pill uh, and patent uh, and give to you for the next 20 years. Yes. They forget, though, about the combinations of materials that are found in the natural world. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, going back to this tree for a moment, uh, outside my window, when it gets sick, uh, it doesn't take 10 milligrams of penicillin. It secretes and, sy and synthesizes combinatorial mixtures of chemicals to kill its fungi or its bacterial invader. Mm -hmm. Very different than what we do, but it survived a billion years. So we have a lot to learn in sort of these three groups or these three sort of areas that have really been overlooked in terms of the natural uh, world. Mm. Okay, um, a quick question for you. Um, with with uh, BioCork, uh, uh, do you guys have a, a section of your uh, your company that researches maybe new ways of doing things we've been doing all our lives? Now, not necessarily new components or new uh, products, but let, well, let me let me give you an example. Um, running, we've been running all our lives, and for 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 as long as humanity has been around. But for example, when the Japanese met the first Europeans, they would run very differently. Because they used to carry like their swords on their side, so we, they they had to be taught to do the normal, typical running and swinging your arms back and forth because they didn't run that way. Or there's a tribe, for example, in Mexico, they're known as the best runners in the world. They're supposed to be the Tahahumaras, I believe they're called, and they have a tendency to run on the ball of their foot. So their their foot sort of starts mimicking a bit the 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 uh, the animal hind leg, and then the the knee acts as a spring. Is there a part of uh, BioCork Industries that studies these kind of things? Um, we don't spend too much time. It's a, it's a great question. We um, let's say we respect the area and. and and one of the things you're describing, sort of biomechanics. Mm -hmm. So the um, biomechanics sits above a lot of the lower functions of the body, but it controls them all. Yes. So, for instance, um, genes, you know, which has been the hot area for the last 10, 20 years, you know, they don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't do anything on their own. Genes have to take their inputs and their, you know, um, instructions from higher forces. They take their instructions from uh, the tissues, the bioelectric potential that flows through the organs, from the viscous extracellular fluids, and of course, very importantly, from what you just pointed out, uh, mechanics, the uh, forces of mechanotransduction. Every time you take a step, uh, there is a force that's permeating through your body that trickles down and affects, you know, not just your knee, but uh, proteins, genes, everything at the lower levels. So while we don't do too much studying of sort of uh, motion uh, or the biomechanics in different, you know, uh, you know what goes on in a, in a swimming organism or a, an octopus mm -hmm. or things like that. We do appreciate that um, you have to. Uh, well, one of the things that makes 
the salamander and the planarian and all these other species so good at regenerating is they integrate biomechanical movements uh, and forces into the regenerative process. And this is a, a very important sort of non-drug type of clue mm -hmm. um, that goes into uh, our thinking. Okay. Uh, but the, the things you do point out are <laughs> indeed fascinating to me just as a uh, a topic yeah it's a, it's an individual a, topic it's a field you guys can relate to and, and, but it's not something the, the company necessarily focuses on so the idea for example the, the prosthetic foot being replaced with a prosthetic blade that becomes much more efficient for running is not necessarily something you guys get into right away no, you, no. you guys focus more on the biology and the deeper and the, the cellular level Exactly. Okay, great. So then let's let's talk about what are you guys working on right now? What was it incredible and exciting that's coming on the horizon for BioQuark? All right. Well, the three things, I mean, the three areas that were, let's say, our core therapeutic focus, one uh, is neurology. Mm -hmm. um, and this is... Um, while you know that while there is some debate obviously uh, that alzheimer's disease and dementia uh, don't kill as many people as heart disease uh, it is clearly the number one problem that we have as oh, a absolutely. society absolutely. um headed our way uh, people say well heart disease and cancer kill more people and we respond well <laughs> we have pretty good drugs for heart disease and we have average ish drugs for cancer but there is nothing out there right now to prevent this sort of tsunami of uh, of alzheimer's and dementia that's coming and um we need to be prepared for it uh pfizer you know fourth largest drug company in the world just mm. got out of alzheimer's research entirely so it really lights a fire under us that we need to get things wow. done so in the area of neurology we're heavily focused on alzheimer's disease how we can regenerate neurons in the brain that have been destroyed mm -hmm. as well as change and remodel the cells that transition to a later stage of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very interested in traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. and spinal cord injury. Uh, and this is an area we've had a lot of success in, uh, in terms of how one gets to reconnect the severed spinal cord uh, in a human being to reverse paralysis. So these are, these are the core of our neurology research uh, focus. Secondarily, we are very interested in cancer, mm. uh, but not from the perspective that uh, we want to find a new way to kill. Uh, we are very interested in all of the species that don't kill cancer, but turn it into something else. Mm. Um, Many of the lower organisms on this planet that are resistant and resilient to cancer don't focus on a kill event. Uh, they focus on changing the tumor back into what it originally was, healthy breast tissue, healthy colon tissue, healthy lung tissue. And so we are taking, once again, the clues from the natural world on not a kill event, but a change event in our oncology program. Is it possible uh, to adapt to the tumor in a way? Leave the tumor the way it is, but, you know, to maybe, you know, instead of reverting it back to a benign thing, to maybe change a, the functions around them to maybe isolate it? It's just, I'm just... Yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's actually the main step. Okay. Um, what they do, they, uh, similar to the way they regenerate, they basically look at the microenvironment that the tumor is in, uh, and then slowly but surely they reprogram the cells to eventually... Uh, swallow and integrate uh, the, that tissue uh, in as normal tissue and basically eliminate the metastatic malignant phenotype. Uh, this is a funny thing. Uh, not funny, but it's uh, you know one of these areas of forgotten re research. We've known about this as a medical 
research community since the 1940s. Mm. We never acted upon it because it was one of those, oh, what are you going to do with this? There's a tank of frogs here that gets cancer and then they get rid of the cancer. But no one really cared about it. Um, but we've known about it since the 1940s. That's uh, and it is a very important area that uh, should not be sweeped under the rug, <laughs> but, but should be learned from. You know, learned from. Hmm. Um, and the last area, metabolic, uh, because while we're interested in uh, diabetes, uh, one cannot overlook the, the connections now that the diabetic state, uh, specifically type 2 diabetes, and the hundreds of millions of people that have this condition nowadays, uh, how it trickles down to everything else. So, you know, not only, um, you know, does it put you in horrible condition, but it destroys your kidneys, it destroys your heart, and now um, even Alzheimer's is being looked at as sort of a third form of diabetes. Uh, so, uh, once again, control of that whole metabolic sugar dynamic, that's, that's our third major focus. And so, while we would like to go broader, we, we're a small company still, of course. but clearly these are, in our opinion, three important therapeutic targets where the need is large and uh, we, where we feel we should put our resources. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, these resources are put to um, combat issues with, with just being human, essentially. Uh, but is there also a part of BioCork that looks outside at maybe just enhancement, enhancing uh, the, you know, bigger, better people, almost like, <laughs> for lack of a better term, the super soldier formula and stuff like that, right? Is there is there something that, uh, that you guys can be working on? Um, yeah, we've, you know, occasionally we get the... Uh the proposals, the requests from proposals from the Department of Defense and, and organizations like that, um, mainly related to sort of battlefield, um, you know, wound healing and um, sort of enhanced, you know, type of, uh, you know, musculature, mm -hmm. things of this nature. Um, it's interesting to us and, and I'm, you know, you know, more of the connection, obviously, to aging and to frailty, of uh, loss of muscle mass. Uh, it, we just don't, we don't have, my previous company had a lot of resources that that, that could apply and, and work sort of in sort of the government grant zone. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not, we don't have time, really. To, yeah, for some of those contracts take, you know, months to fill out and then the bidding process. Um, we love to be there. It's just not. It's not the core right now, but it definitely, yes. I mean, muscle regeneration, um, whether it's the heart or whether it's the skeletal muscle, um, clearly you have a lot of muscles in the body and they fall apart over time. So, uh, And even on yeah. the technology, I mean, uh, there is, for example, uh, if I correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I believe the uh, U.S. Navy ordered uh, many of their ships to have what they call uh, shark skin. On on the the bottom of their hull, so they could actually glide easier through the water instead of simple steel like they used to, and that would be a, a good example of biomimicry. Well, but not necessarily what you guys are working on at BioCork. Yeah, the, the that, that's a that's a really cool application. The one the, the neat one, which was just announced a couple uh, days ago. Actually, I'm going to listen into. They have a, a web call coming up in a couple of weeks. But DARPA uh, recently announced um, that they were beginning to look into cryptobiosis, Ooh. so the science of hibernation. Oh, yeah, which, of course. Which is in its own, you know, how to, if, if somebody's bleeding to death and so forth in the battlefield, how to basically, if you don't have the resources to, to substitute blood or stop bleeding and all that, 
how you slow down a, a body. Yeah, or even um, just to interstellar stellar traveling or going to Mars. Exactly. Like that. Exactly. exactly. These applications exactly. are fantastic. All right, so so if we're looking at, I'm not going to hold you to this, Ira, of course, but if I was to ask you for a small gut feeling, you know, if I say 20 years from now, what do you think we are, we're sitting with this, or 50 years from now? Oh. Um, I'm not going to hold on to you. I'm not going to call you back in 20 years and say, hey, you were wrong on this. Don't worry. <laughs> it's just between you yeah. and me. <laughs> As a, I mean, if looking at it from BioCorp perspective in terms of therapeutics in the in sort of the development arena, definitely within the next ten years, you will see uh, several registered products uh, in uh, in either in the United States and or abroad for some of the therapeutic indications that we just mentioned. Whether we will have full blown, you know, Alzheimer's indication versus a more niche, uh, you know, uh, specific like a brain wounding or uh, healing, uh, that all all remains to be determined. But we definitely will have drug indications within the next ten. Years. Um, wow. What other things will we see? Well, uh, I have been on the record um, before stating that I believe that um, with definitely within the next 20 years, but most likely sooner, you will see a redefinition of what it means to be dead. Oh. Uh, the the current definition of death, which has been defined since 1968, uh, is that of brain death. Mm -hmm. uh, defined at the Harvard Medical School 50 years ago as an irreversible form of coma. Uh, however, uh, once again, going back to nature, there are many species on this planet whose brains uh, you can destroy, uh, some which you can chop out and throw away, uh, and the brains regrow, and the animal does not die, and the animal remembers things. So we believe that there are definite answers, not for all forms of death, um, clearly not things like catastrophic uh, death that you may find in a war zone or murder victim that is not found over a long period of time, but the short-term sort of acute damage that causes 50,000 people a day to leave this world, um, automobile crashes and flying off a motorcycle and accidentally drowning in a pool, um, these forms of brain death most likely will be reversible uh, within the next decade. Whoa. Um, that's so a we, hell of a statement. Yeah, it's um, I, I'm, I stand by it. <laughs> that's that's Not, that's a very impressive. My God, I'm flabbergasted by that. <laughs> that is um, is an area in terms of the severe disorders of consciousness, which also include coma and persistent vegetative state, which the medical community has really devoted no resources to. Mm -hmm. uh, yet we feel that there are very important areas of exploration. Uh, for those indications that will, let's say, really improve the <laughs> the human condition, wow. um, much before fifty years, let's say. Um, Especially if you're saying that not only you you could probably reactivate and regrow part of the uh, the, the the brain, but also reconnect some of the exactly. neural pathways. That's that's absolutely flabbergasting. Wow, that'd be amazing. That is, you know, it's something that we began to explore a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it, the press went a little nutty with it, uh, with all the zombie uh, stuff and, <laughs> and Hollywood and all that bit. But in general, the core concept is, hey, we have 
We have a different set of technologies in 2018 than we had in 1968. We have uh, quite a bit of evidence from the natural world. Uh, and we have several dozen reported cases, although these get swept under the rug also in the literature, but of spontaneous brain death reversal in infants. Uh, putting it all together, it points to the fact that it's probably something that we should take a new look at 50 years later mm -hmm. uh, and see what we can do about it. And on top of all that, uh, just as a side, you know, sort of cocktail trivia thing, you know, when we die uh, of, you know, traditional brain death cascade, mm -hmm. everything below the brain stem is very much alive. Uh, it's one of those insult to injuries that, you know, you don't think about, but um, people that are dead can do lots of things. Um, and if we can just figure out how to reconnect um, the one part of the brain, the brain stem, which controls your breathing and heartbeat, uh, we will have solved the problem that is a big problem. So we're, we think it's a viable area to focus some of our resources on as well. Hmm, yeah, even brings the possibility of doing some kind of a brain transfer or a brain transplant. If the brain is completely hopeless to survive, maybe this the body is still good and could still be used as, a, as another vehicle, I guess, for another brain. Yeah, there, there's there's a, a group that's trying to do that in China, actually, I believe, sometime this year. Mm, yes. I haven't thought too much about the, uh, the, the, the head transplants and the brain transplants, although um, the first brain transplant uh, operations occurred back in the uh, in the in the late 1960s at the University of Indiana, and actually the model organisms at the time were frogs and salamanders. And the funniest thing was, um, it was done in a laboratory, a guy named Paul Peach. Uh, he actually, I forget what the order was, I forget whether the salamander or the frog is the carnivore and one is the herbivore, but when he did the brain swap, the, uh, the frog normally just ate plants started eating worms it was kind of, <laughs> it's a kind of interesting set of experiments but it's a it's a very well documented in an interesting book called shuffle brain which uh, i encourage everyone to get a copy of fantastic uh i uh, i can't help but talk a bit about the uh, current political climate especially you guys have in the united states um from up here in canada it doesn't seem like it's a climate that's very conducive to helping a company like BioQuark survive so um Unless I'm wrong, you're in Philadelphia. You tell me. But if if I'm correct, what would you recommend the layperson do to uh, maybe get the government to be more encouraging towards companies like BioQuark? I mean, you know, there's a lot of different advocacy groups that get involved in, um, you know spreading the word uh, you know at the at the level of individual diseases or certain technologies you know we're somewhat for you know, i say somewhat fortunate but you know we made the decision early on when we set this company up not to model it on anything controversial mm -hmm. and when i say not controversial not like death is not a controversial topic but when it came to some of the things that were getting people angry uh, namely cloning mm -hmm. um, yeah, of course and chimera systems, you know, making a, a pig with human this and that. Um, we stayed away from all that. Yeah. Uh, we also stayed away from genetic engineering for the main reason that, you know, people got really pissed off recently when the first couple therapies came to market and for like, you know, a million dollars a shot. That stuff doesn't make people happy. Mm. Uh, we, we realized that you know if seven billion customers uh, were out there, it didn't make sense to develop or use technologies that um, 
you know, uh, only a couple thousand people could afford. Mm -hmm. So um, we intentionally modeled the company that way. But when, you know, going back to your question, I mean, there's a, there's a lot that people can do. I think, you know, one very important thing, uh, aside from sort of, sort of the advocacy front, um, is become familiar with the clinical trials database systems that exist in the U.S. and abroad. Mm -hmm. um, because this is something that um, very few people take advantage of. Uh, and when they get to the stage where they're so-called no option, where they're sort of they're at the end of medical care, very few, a very small percentage of all patients, very small percentage, ever seek out a clinical study. Um, and they may not know how, or they might not think that they're a candidate, but there are amazing systems, including the clinicaltrials.gov database here in the U.S., run by the National Institutes of Health, which highlights all of this. And, you know, not everything is happening at, you know, the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. You might find out that, you know, if you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis and, and you can't stand the pain, you might find a very interesting clinical study at a hospital, you know, 20 miles down the road from you. Uh, I think everyone should learn to use these resources because they're very beneficial in sort of uh, allowing everyone to take control of their health once their clinician has sort of said, hey, I we're at the end of my expertise. Yeah. So I think those those are important things to follow. Cool. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, you were talking about uh, how some countries like Japan were very open-minded uh, towards what the company was doing. Uh, is the United States still the best place to develop these kind of technologies, according to your company? Or are there other countries out there that are vying for the number one position? Oh, no. If... if the United States is the best if you're just looking at the market size and if you just want to be a U.S. company. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, uh, there's so many things going on right now um, that um, we, hey, we're U.S., we're proud to be a U.S. company, and we're, I'm proud to be American, uh, but I, I cannot overlook things like, for instance, um, last year, uh, the government of China did a deal with Merck. Yes. Uh, fifth largest drug company in the world. Uh, they created a tropical island uh, off the coast of China that is a free zone for experimental use of Merck's therapies now for cancer. Hmm. So if you're dying of X, God forbid, uh, you cannot access that therapy in Canada or the United States. You Right now, you can fly and take a vacation on Hainan Island in China and use Merck's products. Um, this is unheard of. Uh, because this whole area of sort of medical tourism, which may have been seen as rather niche in the past, now you have, you know, the, sort of lar the lar fifth largest drug company in the world and the largest government in the world that are doing something creative like that. Mm. So, you know, you have Japan conditional approval, you have this initiative in China, and then on top of all this, you have major sort of research institutions operating elsewhere. So like you have Harvard Medical School that has set up in Dubai and you have uh, Cornell and Qatar and Newcastle University from the UK and Malaysia. So it's really become a really international system of medical research. So it's not the 1980s anymore. We cannot just focus on the US and worry about everything else later. We have to really know where the action is happening. And hey, if it's not the U.S. and the U.S. is, you know, where we get on the market in, in you know, 12th mm -hmm. <laughs> compared to <laughs> Colombia or Turkey or Thailand, you know, that's what we're going to do. We, we have to go where we can have the most impact uh, for patients today. 
Are you sure you don't want to move to Canada? We get stronger beer. It's cold up there. No, it's not that cold. <laughs> it's actually like nah, almost 80 degrees Canada. today. <laughs> Ira, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate all the the explanation you gave us. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about what BioQuark is doing and what you guys are up to, where can they reach you? Uh, just come to our website, BioQuark.com, B-I-O-Q-R-K. Uh, we have sort of laid out everything there in terms of our relationships and our research programs and uh, everything we have going on. We're fairly transparent about it. Uh, so reach out. Uh, any questions, you know, contact us through the website. We'd be glad to talk about what we're up to. Fantastic. Uh, Ira, before I let you go, i got to have you say, Hi, I'm Ira Pastor of BioCork, and I took a left of the valley. Hi, I'm Ira Pastor from BioCork Incorporated, and I took a left of the valley. And that was Ira Pastor of BioQuark. What a fascinating, fascinating topic. I could have gone on and on on this thing. It's amazing the hope and the technology and the potential that a company like that is uh, working on. And it just makes the future so bright. A future that, you know... A lot of people have a tendency to go doom and gloom, and when we talk to theists, they have a tendency to think, oh, this is the end of the world. When I see a company like BioCorp, it says, no, this, this is the kind of company that sends us to a future that's more like, I don't know, Star Trek or something like that, where the human potential is just absolutely limitless. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, guys. You can follow us at leftatvalley.com. You can follow us at... Uh, you can send us an email at left at valley at outlook.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at LATV Podcast. And send us, give us a five star review, or whatever you hear us. It really helps us and it helps others find the show as well. Coming up next week, we'll be talking to our old friend Christopher DiCarlo, the author of uh, How to Be a Really Good Pain in the Ass. And he's going to be talking to us about the stuff he had to go through. And then, of course, on the 24th, we'll have to be talking to Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. That will be very interesting. One of the best voices I've heard on the other side of the mic. On the At the end of the month, we're talking to Ethan Siegel about the science of Star Trek. So put your geek on when we're doing this. And in April, we'll be talking to singer-songwriter Shelly Siegel. That should be in- interesting. On the 14th, we'll be talking to a crystal's child, Jessica Schwab. That should also be interesting. And, of course, we'll also be talking on the 21st to Dr. Hector Garcia about the psychology of religious oppression. And at the end of April, we'll be talking to Dr. Ben Davis and Nuclear Power. What a star-studded lineup we got going on for you guys. We do a lot of hard work for you guys. I sure hope you guys appreciate it. And I certainly do. And, uh, God, that's all I have to say for now. So, until we speak again, until next time, guys. Believers are evil. What a fucked up statement. Do you realize what you're saying? But according to your book, this is how your God made me. Skeptical of anything that contradicts history, denies evolution, hates science, promotes mystery. I'd rather see the truth than to bask in my own ignorance. Rather be alone than surrounded by damn idiots. As long as there's a price in my body, you can bet your last dollar. I'll be working hard fighting this problem. From culture, only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Were you to say that Horus isn't real, but Jesus is, or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them? I think the reason is apparent. You do what you're told and believe in the God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's sick.
substantiated claims That's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist I'm an atheist I'm an atheist I'm an atheist Now let me take a sec Don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God Pun intended I find it disgraceful That thousands of children Are raped by priests And since they're holy men of God Keep it on the hush, don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them Respect them, fuck that The system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer An infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith And unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist